Welcome and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales episode 17. Tonight we have two of my favorite short stories, one by Nathaniel Hawthorne and one by H.P. Lovecraft. So without further ado, let's begin. Our first story tonight is by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Born in 1804, passed away in 1864, he was an American novelist and short story writer most well known for his novel The Scarlet Letter. He was born in Salem, Massachusetts, and was a descendant of John Hawthorne, the only Salem witch trial judge who never repented for his actions. Sunday at Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne Every Sabbath morning in the summertime, I thrust back the curtain to watch the sunrise stealing down a steeple which stands opposite my chamber window. First, the weathercock begins to flash. Then, a fainter luster gives the spire an airy aspect. Next, it encroaches on the tower and causes the index of the dial to glisten like gold as it points to the gilded figure of the hour. Now, the loftiest window gleams. Now, the lower. The carved framework of the portal is marked strongly out. At length, the morning glory, in its descent from heaven, comes down the stone steps one by one, and there stands the steeple, glowing with fresh radiance, while the shades of twilight still hide themselves among the nooks of the adjacent buildings. Methinks, though the same sun brightens at every fair morning, yet the steeple has a peculiar robe of brightness for the Sabbath. By dwelling near a church, a person soon contracts an attachment for the edifice. We naturally personify it, and conceive its massy walls and its dim emptiness to be instinct with a calm and meditative and somewhat melancholy spirit. But the steeple stands foremost in our thoughts, as well as locally. It impresses us as a giant with a mind comprehensive and discriminating enough to care for the great and small concerns of all the town. Hourly, while it speaks a moral to the few that think, it reminds thousands of busy individuals of their separate and most secret affairs. It is the steeple, too, that flings abroad the hurried and irregular accents of general alarm. Neither have gladness and festivity found a better utterance than by its tongue. And when the dead are slowly passing to their home, the steeple has a melancholy voice to bid them welcome. Yet, in spite of this connection with human interests, what a moral loneliness on weekdays broods round about its stately height. It has no kindred with the houses above which it towers. It looks down into the narrow thoroughfare, the lonelier because the crowd are elbowing their passage at its base. A glance at the body of the church deepens this impression. Within, by the light of distant windows, amid refracted shadows, we discern the vacant pews and empty galleries the silent organ, the voiceless pulpit, and the clock which tells to solitude how time is passing. Time, where man lives not. What is it but eternity? And in the church, we might suppose, are garnered up throughout the week, all thoughts and feelings that have reference to eternity, until the holy day comes round again to let them forth. Might not, then, its more appropriate site be in the outskirts of the town, with space for old trees to wave around it and throw their solemn shadows over a quiet green? We will say more of this hereafter. 
But on the Sabbath, I watch the earliest sunshine and fancy that a holier brightness marks the day when there shall be no buzz of voices on the exchange, nor traffic in the shops, nor crowd, nor business anywhere, but at church. Many have fancied so. For my own part, whether I see it scattered down among tangled woods, or beaming broad across the fields, or hemmed in between brick buildings, or tracing out the figure of the casement on my chamber floor, still I recognize the Sabbath sunshine, and ever let me recognize it. Some illusions, and this among them, are the shadows of great truths. Doubt may flit around me, or seem to close their evil wings and settle down, but so long as I imagine that the earth is hallowed and the light of heaven retains its sanctity on the Sabbath, while that blessed sunshine lives within me, never can my soul have lost the instinct of its faith. If it have gone astray, it will return again. I love to spend such pleasant Sabbaths from morning till night behind the curtain of my open window. Are they spent amiss? Every spot so near the church as to be visited by the circling shadow of the steeple should be deemed consecrated ground today. With stronger truth be it said that a devout heart may consecrate a den of thieves, as an evil one may convert a temple to the same. My heart, perhaps, has no such holy, nor, I would fain trust, such impious potency. It must suffice that, though my form be absent, my inner man goes constantly to church, while many whose bodily presence fills the accustomed seats have left their souls at home. But I am there even before my friend the sexton. At length he comes, a man of kindly but somber aspect, in dark gray clothes and hair of the same mixture. He comes and applies his key to the wide portal. Now my thoughts may go in among the dusty pews or ascend the pulpit without sacrilege, but soon come forth again to enjoy the music of the bell. How glad, yet solemn, too. All the steeples in town are talking together, aloft in their sunny air and rejoicing among themselves, while their spires point heavenward. Meantime, here are the children assembling to the Sabbath school, which is kept somewhere within the church. Often, while looking at the arched portal, I have been gladdened by the sight of a score of these little girls and boys in pink, blue, yellow, and crimson frocks, bursting suddenly forth into the sunshine like a swarm of gay butterflies that have been shut up in the solemn gloom. Or I might compare them to cherubs haunting that holy place. About a quarter of an hour before the second ringing of the bell, individuals of the congregation begin to appear. The earliest is invariably an old woman in black, whose bent frame and rounded shoulders are evidently laden with some heavy affliction which she is eager to rest upon the altar. Would that the Sabbath came twice as often for the sake of that sorrowful old soul. There is an elderly man, also, who arrives in good season, and leans against the corner of the tower, just within the line of its shadow, looking downward with a darksome brow. I sometimes fancy that the old woman is the happier of the two. After these, others drop in singly and by twos and threes, either disappearing through the doorway or taking their stand in its vicinity. At last, 
and always with an unexpected sensation. The bell turns in the steeple overhead and throws out an irregular clangor, jarring the tower to its foundations. As if there were magic in the sound, the sidewalks of the street, both up and down along, are immediately thronged with two long lines of people, all converging hitherward and streaming into the church. Perhaps the far-off roar of a coach draws nearer, a deeper thunder by its contrast with the surrounding stillness, until it sets down the wealthy worshippers at the portal among their humblest brethren. Beyond that entrance, in theory at least, there are no distinctions of earthly rank, nor indeed by the goodly apparel which is flaunting in the sun where there seem to be such on the hither side. Those pretty girls, why will they disturb my pious meditations? Of all days in the week, they should strive to look least fascinating on the Sabbath, instead of heightening their mortal loveliness as if to rival the blessed angels and keep our thoughts from heaven. Were I the minister himself, I must needs look. One girl is white muslin from the waist upward and black silk downward to her slippers. A second blushes from the top knot to shoe tie, one universal scarlet. Another shines of a pervading yellow, as if she had made a garment out of the sunshine. The greater part, however, have adopted a milder cheerfulness of hue. Their veils, especially when the wind raises them, give a lightness to the general effect and make them appear like airy phantoms as they flit up the steps and vanish into the somber doorway. Nearly all, though it is very strange that I should know it, wear white stockings, white as snow, and neat slippers laced crosswise with black ribbon pretty high above the ankles. A white stocking is infinitely more effective than a black one. Here comes the clergyman, slow and solemn, in severe simplicity, needing no black silk gown to denote his office. His aspect claims my reverence, but cannot win my love. Were I to picture St. Peter keeping fast the gate of heaven and frowning more stern than pitiful on the wretched applicants, that face should be my study. By middle age, or sooner, the creed has generally wrought upon the heart or been attempered by it. As the minister passes into the church, the bell holds its iron tongue and all the low murmur of the congregation dies away. The gray sexton looks up and down the street and then at my window curtain, where, through the small peephole, I half fancy that he has caught my eye. Now, every loiterer has gone in, and the street lies asleep in the quiet sun, while a feeling of loneliness comes over me, and brings also an uneasy sense of neglected privileges and duties. Oh, I ought to have gone to church. The bustle of the rising congregation reaches my ears. They are standing up to pray. Could I bring my heart into unison with those who are praying in yonder church and lift it heavenward with a fervor of supplication, but no distinct request? Would not that be the safest kind of prayer? Lord, look down upon me in mercy. With that sentiment gushing from my soul, might I not leave all the rest to him? Hark, the hymn. 
This, at least, is a portion of the service which I can enjoy better than if I sat within the walls, where the full choir and the massive melody of the organ would fall with a weight upon me. At this distance, it thrills through my frame and plays upon my heartstrings with a pleasure, both of the sense and spirit. Heaven be praised! I know nothing of music as a science, and the most elaborate harmonies, if they please me, please as simply as a nurse's lullaby. The strain has ceased, but prolongs itself in my mind with fanciful echoes till I start from my reverie and find that the sermon has commenced. It is my misfortune to seldom fructify in a regular way by any but printed sermons. The first strong idea which the preacher utters gives birth to a train of thought and leads me onward, step by step, quite out of the hearing of the good man's voice, unless he be indeed a son of thunder. At my open window, catching now and then a sentence of the parson's saw, I am as well situated as at the foot of the pulpit stairs. The broken and scattered fragments of this one discourse will be the texts of many sermons preached by those colleague pastors. Colleagues, but often disputants. My mind and heart. The former pretends to be a scholar and perplexes me with doctrinal points. The later takes me on the score of feeling, and both, like several other preachers, spend their strengths to very little purpose. I, their sole auditor, cannot always understand them. Suppose that a few hours have passed, and behold me, still behind my curtain, just before the close of the afternoon service. The hour hand on the dial has passed beyond four o'clock. The declining sun is hidden behind the steeple and throws its shadow straight across the street, so that my chamber is darkened as with a cloud. Around the church door all is solitude and an impenetrable obscurity beyond the threshold. A commotion is heard. The seats are slammed down and the pew doors thrown back. A multitude of feet are trampling along the unseen aisles and the congregation bursts suddenly through the portal. Foremost scampers a rabble of boys, behind whom moves a dense and dark phalanx of grown men. And lastly, a crowd of females with young children and a few scattered husbands. This instantaneous outbreak of life into the loneliness is one of the pleasantest scenes of the day. Some of the good people are rubbing their eyes, thereby intimating that they had been wrapped, as it were, in a sort of holy trance by the fervor of their devotion. There is a young man, a third-rate coxcomb, whose first care is always to flourish a white handkerchief and brush the seat of a tight pair of black silk pantaloons, which shine as if varnished. They must have been made of the stuff called everlasting, or perhaps of the same piece as Christian's garments in the Pilgrim's Progress. For he put them on two summers ago and has not yet worn the gloss off. I have taken a great liking to those black silk pantaloons. But now, with nods and greetings among friends, each matron takes her husband's arm and paces gravely homeward, while the girls also flutter away after arranging sunset walks with their favored bachelors. The Sabbath eve is the eve of love. At length, the whole congregation is dispersed. No, 
Here, with faces as glossy as black satin, come two sable ladies and a sable gentleman, and close in their rear the minister, who softens his severe visage and bestows a kind word on each. Poor souls! To them, the most captivating picture of bliss in heaven is, There we shall be white. All is solitude again. But hark! A broken warbling of voices, and now, attuning its grandeur to their sweetness, a stately peal of the organ. Who are the choristers? Let me dream that the angels who come down from heaven this blessed morn to blend themselves with the worship of the truly good are playing and singing their farewell to the earth on the wings of that rich melody they were born upward. This, gentle reader, is merely a flight of poetry. A few of the singing men and singing women had lingered behind their fellows and raised their voices fitfully and blew a careless note upon the organ. Yet it lifted my soul higher than all their former strains. They are gone, the sons and daughters of music, and the gray sexton is just closing the portal. For six days more there will be no face of man in the pews and aisles and galleries, nor a voice in the pulpit, nor music in the choir. Was it worth while to rear this massive edifice to be a desert in the heart of the town, and populous only for a few hours of each seventh day? Oh, but the church is a symbol of religion. May its site, which was consecrated on the day when the first tree was felled, be kept holy forever, a spot of solitude and peace amid the trouble and vanity of our weekday world. There is a moral and a religion too, even in the silent walls. And may the steeple still point heavenward and be decked with the hallowed sunshine of the Sabbath morn. Well, that story was published in 1837 in the book Twice Told Tales, which collected together some of Hawthorne's earlier short stories that had been published in periodicals. The name of this short story actually became the title of a publication, The Sunday at Home, a family magazine for Sabbath reading, which was in publication from 1854 until 1940. Now, I just want to say that uh, while I'm not necessarily a big fan of literary critique, I do want to say a couple of words about this story. On the surface, the story comes off as a very pleasant story about spirituality and the joys of the Sabbath. However, I feel personally that when you scratch this story a little bit, some of that veneer comes off and it, it takes on a somewhat creepy aspect. For instance, there are a couple of questions that the story leaves in my mind. One, why doesn't he go to church? Why doesn't he mix with the community that he is that he clearly knows so much about? Did something happen? Is he ostracized from the community? It's it's left very vague and ambiguous. And second, there is a passage where he even admits himself that he has information that he shouldn't otherwise have. How does he know the color of the stockings that most of the young ladies are wearing beneath their, their Sunday best? These two questions to me leave uh, a bit of a creepy feeling about the story. And that's perhaps one of the reasons that I enjoy the story so much. Alright, our next story tonight is by H.P. Lovecraft. 
He was born in 1890, passed away in 1937. He was a short story writer, most known for his Cthulhu Mythos stories and his pulp magazine submissions. Until the year 2015, the World Fantasy Award was a bust of H.P. Lovecraft. The Music of Eric Zan by H.P. Lovecraft I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue de Cille. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiques of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I knew as the Rue d'Assile. But despite all I have done, it remains an humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Zan. That my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical and mental, was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue de Cille. And I recall that I took none of my few acquaintances there. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it was within a half-hour's walk of the university, and was distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. I have never met a person who has seen the Rue de Cille. The Rue de Cille lay across a dark river, bordered by precipitous brick blear-windowed warehouses, and spanned by a ponderous bridge of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches which I have never smelled elsewhere, and which may some day help me to find it, since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled streets with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual, but increasingly steep as the Rue de Cille was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue de Cille. It was almost a cliff closed to all vehicles, consisting in several places of flights of steps, and ending at the top in a lofty ivied wall. Its paving was irregular, sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth with struggling greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peaked-roofed, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backward, forward, and sideways. Occasionally, an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. There were a few overhead bridges from house to house across the street. The inhabitants of that street impressed me peculiarly. At first, I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, but later decided it was because they were all very old. I do not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. I had been living in many poor places, always evicted for want of money, until at last I came upon that tottering house in the Rue de Cille, kept by the paralytic Blandot. It was the third house from the top of the street, and by far the tallest of them all. My room was on the fifth story, 
the only inhabited room there, since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived, I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blandot about it. He told me that it was an old German viol player, a strange, dumb man who signed his name as Eric Zahn, and who played evenings in a cheap theater orchestra, adding that Zahn's desire to play in the night after his return from the theater was the reason that he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gable window was the only point on the street from which one could look out over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter, I heard Zan every night, and although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of his music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before, and concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until after a week I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zan in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person with shabby clothes, blue eyes, grotesque, satyr-like face, and nearly bald head, and, at my first words, seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him and he grudgingly motioned me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of only two in the steeply pitched garret, was on the west side, toward the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great, and seemed the greater because of its extraordinary barrenness and neglect. Of furniture, there was only a narrow bedstead, a dingy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder about the floor. The walls were of bare boards, and had probably never known plaster, whilst the abundance of dust and cobwebs made the place seem more deserted than inhabited. Evidently, Eric Zan's world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolt, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. He now removed his viol from its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least uncomfortable of the chairs. He did not employ the music rack, but, offering no choice and playing from memory, enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before strains which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one unversed in music. They were a kind of fugue, with recurrent passages of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below on other occasions. Those haunting notes I had remembered and had often hummed and whistled inaccurately to myself. So when the player at length laid down his bow, I asked him if he would render some of them. As I began my request, the wrinkled satyr-like face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing, and seemed to show the same curious mixture of anger and fright which I had noticed when I first accosted the old man. 
For a moment, I was inclined to use persuasion, regarding, rather lightly, the whims of senility, and even tried to awaken my host's weirder mood by whistling a few of the strains to which I had listened the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment, for when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance toward the lone curtained window, as if fearful of some intruder. A glance doubly absurd, since the garret stood high and inaccessible, above all the adjacent roofs. This window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Blandot's remark to my mind, and with a certain capriciousness, I felt a wish to look out over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop, which, of all the dwellers of the Rue de Cille, only this crabbed musician could see. I moved toward the window and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains, when, with a frightened rage, even greater than before, the dumb lodger was upon me again, this time motioning me with his head toward the door as he nervously strove to drag me thither with both hands. Now, thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed, and as he saw my disgust and offense, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, but this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair then, with an appearance of wistfulness, crossing to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil in the labored French of a foreigner. The note which he finally handed to me was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness. Zan said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music and with other things. He had enjoyed my listening to his music, and wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities. But he could not play to another his weird harmonies, and could not bear hearing them from another. Nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room, and now asked me if I would arrange with Blandot to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would, he wrote, defray the difference in rent. As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient toward the old man. He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and... My metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. In the silence, there came a slight sound from the window. The shutter must have rattled in the night wind. And, for some reason, I started almost as violently as did Eric Zan. So, when I had finished reading, I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blando gave me a more expensive room on the third floor, between the apartments of an aged moneylender and the room of a respectable upholsterer. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Zan's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed while he was persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly.
This was always at night. In the day, he slept and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, though the attic room and the weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out of that window, over the wall, and down the unseen slope at the glittering roofs and spires which must lie outspread there. Once I went up to the garret during theater hours when Zan was away, but the door was locked. What I did succeed in doing was to overhear the nocturnal playing of the dumb old man. At first I would tiptoe up to my old fifth floor, then I grew bold enough to climb the last creaking staircase to the peaked garret. There, in the narrow hall, outside the bolted door, with the covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread, the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but that they held vibrations, suggesting nothing on this globe of earth, and that at certain intervals they assumed a symphonic quality which I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. Certainly, Eric Zan was a genius of wild power. As the weeks passed, the playing grew wilder, whilst the old musician acquired an increasing haggardness and furtiveness pitiful to behold. He now refused to admit me at any time, and shunned me whenever we met on the stairs. Then, one night as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking viol swell into a chaotic babble of sound. A pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my shaking sanity had there not come from behind that barred portal a piteous proof that the horror was real. The awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. I knocked repeatedly at the door, but received no response. Afterward, I waited in the black hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. Believing him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping, at the same time calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Zan stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, then stumble to the door, which he falteringly unfastened to admit me. This time, his delight at having me present was real, for his distorted face gleamed with relief while he clutched at my coat as a child clutches at its mother's skirts. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair whilst he sank into another, beside which his viol and bow lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time inactive, nodding oddly, but having a paradoxal suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table, wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returned to the table where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me in the name of mercy, and for the sake of my own curiosity, to wait where I was while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terrors which beset him. I waited, and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later, while I still waited, and while the old musician's feverishly written sheets still continued to pile up, that I saw Zan start as from the hint of a horrible shock. 
Unmistakably, he was looking at the curtained window and listening shudderingly. Then, I half-fancied, I heard a sound myself, though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note, suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses or in some abode beyond the lofty wall over which I had never been able to look. Upon Zan, the effect was terrible, for dropping his pencil suddenly, he rose, seized his viol, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I had ever heard from his bow, save when listening at the barred door. It would be useless to describe the playing of Eric Zan on that dreadful night. It was more horrible than anything I had ever overheard, because I could now see the expression of his face and could realize that this time the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward something off or drown something out. What I could not imagine, awesome though I felt it must be. The playing grew frantic, delirious and hysterical, yet kept to the last the qualities of supreme genius which I knew this strange old man possessed. I recognized the air. It was a wild Hungarian dance popular in the theaters, and I reflected for a moment that this was the first time I had ever heard Zan play the work of another composer. Louder and louder, wilder and wilder mounted the shrieking and whining of that desperate viol. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtained window. In his frenzied strains, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through seething abysses of clouds and smoke and lightning. And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the viol, a calm, deliberate, purposeful, mocking note from far away in the west. At this juncture, the shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind which had sprung up outside as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zan's screaming viol now outdid itself, emitting sounds I had never thought a viol could emit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened and commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under the persistent impacts, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling the sheets of paper on the table where Zan had begun to write out his horrible secret. I looked at Zan and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy, and sightless, and the frantic playing had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy that no pen could even suggest. A sudden gust, stronger than the others, caught up the manuscript and bore it toward the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished panes. Then I remembered my old wish to gaze from this window, the only window in the Rue d'Assile from which one might see the slope beyond the wall and the city outspread beneath. It was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them there amidst the rain and wind. Yet, 
when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane viol howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below and no friendly lights gleaming from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable, unimagined space alive with motion and music and having no semblance to anything on earth. And as I stood there looking in terror, the wind blew out both the candles in that ancient peaked garret, leaving me in savage and impenetrable darkness, with chaos and pandemonium before me, and the demon madness of that night-baying viol behind me. I staggered back in the dark, without the means of striking a light, crashing against the table, overturning a chair, and finally groping my way to the place where the blackness screamed with shocking music. To save myself and Eric Zan, I could at least try, whatever the powers opposed to me. Once, I thought some chill thing brushed me, and I screamed, but my scream could not be heard above that hideous viol. Suddenly, out of the blackness, the madly sawing bow struck me, and I knew I was close to the player. I felt ahead, touched the back of Zan's chair, and then found and shook his shoulder in an effort to bring him to his senses. He did not respond, and still the veal shrieked on without slackening. I moved my hand to his head, whose mechanical nodding I was able to stop and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night. But he neither answered me, nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music, while all through the garret strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness and babble. When my head touched his ear, I shuddered, though I knew not why. Knew not why, till I felt the still face, the ice, cold, stiffened, unbreathing face whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. And then, by some miracle, finding the door and the large wooden bolt, I plunged wildly away from the glassy-eyed thing in the dark, and from the ghoulish howling of that accursed viol whose fury increased even as I plunged. Leaping, floating, flying down those endless stairs through the dark house, racing mindlessly out into the narrow, steep, and ancient street of steps and tottering houses, clattering down steps and over cobbles to the lower streets and the putrid canyon-walled river, panting across the great dark bridge to the broader, healthier streets and boulevards we know. All these are terrible impressions that linger with me, and I recall that there was no wind, and that the moon was out, and that all the lights of the city twinkled. Despite my most careful searches and investigations, I have never since been able to find the Rue de Ciel. But I am not wholly sorry, either for this or for the loss in undreamable abysses of the closely written sheets which alone could have explained the music of Eric Zan. Well, that story was written in December 1921 and published in the National Amateur in March 1922. 
Two short film adaptations of this story exist, one from 1980 by John Stasek and one from 2016 by Reuben Barron. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our stories for tonight. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line via our email at bygonetales at gmail.com. You can also visit our Facebook page, Bygone Tales Podcast. Also, feel free to stop by our webpage at mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and click on the link for Bygone Tales. Every episode has a section for comments, and we would love to hear what, uh, what you think about these stories. Did Sunday at Home leave you with the same kind of creepy feeling that I had, or am I just weird? Feel free to stop by and, uh, and let me know. I would love to hear your opinions. As usual, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support us, please, please, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. Every review you leave helps us get a little more helps us get a little more notice. The more notice we get, the more listeners we get. The more listeners we get, the more likely we are to keep on doing this for a while. I would like to give a quick shout out to Zachary. Thank you for your words of encouragement. I appreciate it. Keep listening. I hope you enjoy. And until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Well, as the holiday season approaches, sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. If you're interested in the game Magic the Gathering, they also have Magic the Gathering graded magic cards. They have all slabbed cards and rare BGS graded cards. Now, I'll admit, I don't know what that means, but they assure me if you're into Magic the Gathering, you will know what that means, and they have a great selection. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.